One of my favorite musicals is probably best known by the term tradition. Anyone know the name of this? Fiddler on the Roof, yeah. So the, the scene opens with Tevya telling you all about the community life. He says, tradition, that's how we stick together. That's how we do da 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 And they start singing the song. And I love this line because I think it's a really good idea. Here's what he says. He says, well, and the song says, And who does mama teach to mend and tend and fix, preparing me to marry whoever papa picks? The daughters, the daughters, tradition. So let me ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. How would you feel if starting today, your mom, and probably more likely your dad, said, I will now choose your husband or your wife for you? Anyone on board for that? No. Okay, one of <laughs> one person. Well, it turns out, actually, that when, when your parents pick your spouse, they actually do a better job because that's still the tradition all over the world. I mean, we're pretty unique as Western civilization. We think we should pick our own spouses and that we'd likely do a better job. But it turns out that these marriages that have been arranged do a pretty good job of picking spouses that will endure for the long haul. So that's why we're introducing for the very first time a new event in True North, True North Matchmaker. Next month, if you're single, you show up to this event, I am going to arrange your marriage for you. And I'm going to find you someone that I take credit for Andrew and Megan. I take credit for uh, uh, who, who, uh, uh, Andrew Heisler and Maddie. I take credit for Abby and Joseph. I'm three for three, so I feel like I'm doing pretty good right now. True North Matchmaker begins next month. Married ring by spring. That's the goal. Tradition. That's what tradition is. Speaking of tradition, it got me thinking about a time that we were driving back from an event. Sarah was driving along with me. She was transporting a carload of girls. Well, you know, as it turns out, I don't know what happened. She either ran over something or someone. We don't know. But she ended up popping her tire, destroying her tire. Tire was obliterated. Now, here's my question for you. I'm in a car uh, of, of a lot of guys, and she's in a car full of a lot of girls. We both pull over pop quiz, and you know the answer to this question. Who should change the tire? Someone said the girls? <laughs> Matt Daniel, you're grounded. <laughs> I was very pleasantly surprised that the guys sprung into, sprung into action. All the guys in the back were unloading. The, we, the trunk was packed, so they had to pull out all the, all the stuff that Sarah had back there. You know how ladies pack. There's a bunch of stuff back there. So <laughs> they took out the makeup bags and the puppies and all the other stuff that the girls had packed. And they began changing the tire, as they should. But could you identify, if I put my finger in your chest and say, show me where in the Bible it says that guys are supposed to change the tire? Anyone want to volunteer? Come here. <laughs> There's no place in the Bible that says that guys are supposed to change the tire, or that guys are supposed to open the door for girls, or that guys are supposed to do anything. Except that we're supposed to treat them as the weaker vessel, as Peter says. And even, even that context, he's talking about husbands with their wives. Traditions can be a great thing, but they're terrible when we try to wrap our lives around them and say that this is the way that things are supposed to be, as if this is the equivalent to God's word. And that's exactly what happens in our text today in Matthew chapter 7. 
What's happening is that Jesus has this conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes because they think that Jesus is breaking the word of God, when in fact he's not. What he's breaking is the tradition. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you because you may say to yourself, well, we don't really have many traditions, but au contraire, that was Spanish, just kidding, uh, that was... That really is not true. When you think about it, for just a brief moment, you might realize that there's a lot of traditions that you and I continue today that aren't part of the Word of God. And I gave you one example. Changing a tire is kind of a tradition that we have kept for, I don't know how long, however long we've had cars, I suppose. Maybe in the day of horses, it was a guy's job to change a horseshoe, right? probably the same. But that's a tradition. There's no Bible verse for that. That's just the way that we do things. But the problem for us becomes when we start valuing the tradition over and above the Word of God. Well, Pastor Rod, I don't do that, or do you? You'll soon find out. Look with me at Mark chapter 7, and let's take a look at how Jesus interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees when they accuse him of wrongdoing, which is what they're often trying to do. In this case, let's see how it unfolds. He says, Mark narrating here, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, now just pause for a brief moment here and notice two things here. Okay, notice this. The Pharisees and the scribes are now working together. They are now doing everything they can <laughs> to undermine the ministry of Jesus. The scribes, are, you remember, are who? Yell it at me. They're the lawyers. Good. They are the Rob Kellys of the first century. Rob Kelly, identify yourself so everyone knows who you are. <laughs> Rob Kelly is not over there. Don't look at him. These scribes were the experts of the law. Now, here's the thing. Uh, some scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. The scribes would look at God's word, study it, come to conclusions, and then the Pharisees would scrupulously uh, follow those rules. And so now they're teaming up together, and you'll notice that where they come from is also important. Look at this. I told you Jerusalem is about, let's just call it 80 miles rough and dirty, south of where this is taking place. This is probably still in the region of Galilee, so maybe Capernaum, where Jesus had his ministry. The scribes and the Pharisees now are teaming up against Jesus to accuse him. Let's find out what they're accusing him for. Now, when the Pharisees had gathered, verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples, this is probably the 12 apostles here, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, what does he mean by that? Is this about hygiene and getting rid of the germs and viruses? No. This is a ceremonial washing. This is about ritual and custom. In fact, what you're about to hear is the religious scribes and Pharisees' approach to how they were to guard the Word of God. So, for instance, the idea behind this was if we create fence laws around God's Word, we'll never violate God's Word. And that's what they had going on here. They would say, you should wash your hands and wash your cups and everything else so that you never accidentally violate God's law. Sounds like it comes from a place of a good heart, right? That sounds good. That makes sense. But the problem was, is that the Pharisees and the scribes at this point were saying, no, these are just as important, in fact, even more important than God's word. You can understand how that might frustrate Jesus. Verse 3 gives you one really solid reason why you can know that this is written to a particular audience. If this audience were Jews, Mark would not need to explain this, but verse 3 tells us that this is a Gentile audience. Verse 3 says, Mark explains, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, that is, it's a common practice, most people now, most Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, and here's the key words for today's sermon, holding to the tradition of the elders. He further explains in verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat 
unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. What you see here is, is what was beginning to bud as a whole religious system that was developed based upon, here's this, okay, listen close, based upon oral tradition. So you have what is written in the Old Testament, and then you have the oral tradition, which is scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, who would say, here's the way that you're supposed to understand this. Here's how you should guard the law. Here's how you should apply the law. Again, the problem is not that they taught this or that they had application. The problem is that this began to grow into its own religious system. For instance, you'll see here, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels. And you might say, well, I wash the dishes every day. Mom cleans the house and I clean with her and I have to wash my dishes after me. But this is not that. This is not getting some joy in a scrub brush and saying, okay, let me clean the pot. This is, again, ritual cleansing. And then you'll notice, too, when it happens, it takes place in the marketplace. Pop quiz, think of an answer, and then I'll give it to you. Okay, here, here it is. Why would they need to wash after visiting the marketplace? Don't answer. Think about it. Have an answer? The reason they would wash after the marketplace is because the marketplace is where they would encounter a lot of different people, including Gentiles. I don't know why I said it so lowly, but Gentiles. Gentiles, Samaritans, unclean people. And in fact, they might have accidentally touched someone who maybe touched a dead body, and therefore now they're ritually unclean. And so all of these customs and all these things that grew out of this was meant to be a protective element for the Jewish people, but ended up being a law, a burden for them. In fact, one of the, one of the burdens, here, let me, here's an example. The Jews, based on the Mishnah, the oral tradition, said that if you read a certain book of the Bible, you had to wash your hands afterward. And just to give you a sense of it, it's the, the books that are written in Aramaic. So you got Daniel and Esther. When you read those books, because they're written in a different language, you should wash your hands after that. But if the books are translated into Hebrew, you didn't have to wash your hands. That's the kind of stuff that they would invent. That's in the Mishnah. And that's what Jesus is coming up against. Scribes and Pharisees say, your people are, washing, are not washing their hands. What's wrong with you people? In other words, Jesus, you're wrong about this. What's the problem here? You probably have already seen this. You'd look at this and you say, the Jews are legalists. In fact, we use another word, Pharisees, right? Pharisaism. You guys are legalists. And it's easy for us in 2019 to look back at the first century and say, you guys are such dummies. What's your problem? But let me point the finger at you while pointing the finger at us and saying, it's not just them who have the issue. You and I need to be just as careful to be sure that we are not falling into the same trap of legalism. In fact, let's put it like this point. Number one, we, okay, I lost connection. Point number one, there it is. Beware your tendency toward legalism. Beware your tendency. I, could, I guess I could have said beware our tendency toward legalism. That it's not just a them thing, it's an us thing. Elvis just answered the question about secular music. I had a friend of mine who years ago made the commitment that he would never listen to another secular song, or at least for a season of time. He'd only listen to Christian music, and that was well and great. And that was fine. In fact, I think he really enjoyed it. He had a great season of growth out of that. But, and that's not wrong. The problem is when I say to you, hey, you can't listen to fill in the blank. You should not listen to this song or that song. And this gets choppy because some songs are terrible. But the problem becomes when we start elevating our, our tradition to the level of Scripture. For instance, you might, you might, someone, someone might say to you, you listen to country music, you're of the devil. <laughs> um, which I like country music, so I, I wouldn't say that. Or if you listen to, uh, I don't know, here's, here's what I've heard recently, uh, death metal, which I know some of it, most of it is awful, but death metal, there's Christian death metal bands too, which seems like a contradiction, I know, but they're out there. Um, 
you can't listen to this kind of music or that kind of music. But here's the problem. As, biblical, uh, as people who desire to be biblical, we have to say, what does the Word of God say about that? Does the Word of God say anywhere, thou shalt not listen to ACDC or Chance the Rapper or Kanye or whoever else? It doesn't. However, 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 big, big star asterisk here, that doesn't mean that we have license to listen to anything and everything. It does mean that as people of the Bible, we have to be clear to understand what does it say and how do we apply it? other words, legalism abounds. In fact, let me give you three different types of legalism that you need to be aware of. And the first one is easy. It's the one you're probably going to think of whenever you think of the term legalism. It's trying to do enough good works to earn your place before God. It's saying, God, if I just do enough good things, I know you'll accept me. I know you'll love me. I know you'll let me into heaven because I'm a good person. I've been listening lately to this guy named Dennis Prager. He's a political commentator. He's a, he's a, he's a conservative guy. He's also a conservative Jew. So, Dennis Prager, he's on like three hours uh, of the day. I don't even know what radio station. That's another podcast. But anyhow, uh, during the second half of his podcast, he, he takes listener questions. And one of the questions was this. He said, Dennis, what's the difference between a Christian and a Jew? Of course, at this point, I'm leaning in. I'm saying, oh, this is interesting. I can't wait to hear his answer on this. And I think, based on his answer, you'll be surprised. He says, for the Christians... He said, Christians believe that they have earned heaven through the meritorious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as a Christian, I'm thinking, wow, that was really good. That was a really good like, couple-sentence summary of what we do believe. We believe that we go to heaven on the merits and the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. But then he, he, he lets you know how he thinks the Jews believe they go to heaven. In fact, he's a, he studies the Torah. He just released a, a commentary set on the, on the Torah. Pentateuch, more specifically, actually. I'm not sure if it's on the whole Old Testament, but the Pentateuch. Here's what he said. He said, Jews, however, we believe that we need to, you ready for this? Earn heaven. And that's why I like capitalism, he said. He went on to a political commentary, but he says, that's why we work so hard. He says, no one should be allowed into heaven who doesn't earn their way. So we believe that we should earn their way to God. And I thought, Dennis, you're absolutely right. In fact, you're not just right about Judaism. You're right about every other religion in the world, save Christianity. We believe that heaven is given to us. God is given to us based upon our relationship to Jesus Christ and not our good works. The Bible is replete with information all about that. But that's the first type of legalism. And you may not realize this, but there's often a tendency in us to have this kind of transactional relationship with God where it's like, well, I'm having a really good week, God. I'm really doing well. I read my Bible every day this week. I'm praying a couple times a day. You know, I've memorized a couple verses. I'm having a really good week. I bet you're, we may never say this, but you might think, man, I bet I'm really going to be blessed this week. You're really going to do a lot of good things for me. You might be really happy for me this week. And there is a sense in which our righteousness does please God. He's not upset about that. He loves that we're righteous. But whenever we start thinking in terms of like, man, I know God's happy with me this week. I've done a lot of good things. And that's where we're on dangerous ground. We start getting into the territory of legalism. And you'll notice that I, I, I did the air quote for the law. Why? Why? Because here's the problem. We're like that guy who, who noticed the, the, the barn house of a, of a farmer. And he noticed that on the barn house of this farmer, there were, there were bullseyes all around the barn house. And there were arrows directly in the center. And so the man asked the farmer, hey, hey how'd you get so good at shooting these, these bullseyes? And he said, it's simple. I shoot an arrow at the barn and then I paint a bullseye around it. <laughs> That's... That's what we do with the law of God. We fall so short that we're willing to say, well, this is really where the bar is. Where Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, therefore you're guilty. It's not that you're guilty to the same degree, it's the same type of sin. 
And therefore, when we look at God's law, we can't say, well, even though the bar's up here, if I just kind of get this way, then maybe the rest will be covered somehow. Well, really, the only way that rest could be covered is through the cross of Jesus Christ, making us righteous. It's one type of legalism. Second type is the kind that you see here, allowing man-made traditions to be binding where God has left you free. There's a lot of these. There's, a, there's, there's, there's Christians who only attend church on Sundays. And in fact, there's others who would say, oh, you should only attend church on Saturday. That's actually something different. But you and I, we attend church Sunday, Saturday. It kind of doesn't matter for us. We esteem different days and, and that's fine. But there are some churches that say, man, you guys go to church on Saturday? You guys do a Saturday 5 p.m. service? That's, that's awful. Why do you do that? And we could say, well, God's word allows us the freedom to have church any day of the week. We could do church on a Tuesday if we wanted to. But Saturday and Sunday tends to be our day. Another type of tradition that you don't realize exists is the tradition of clothing. Here's a good example. I can see, last night there was a couple of you, I can see a couple hats in this crowd. Don't feel bad. I'm not not calling you out on purpose here. (laughs) Hats are fine. I don't have any problem with them. Most of you have no problem with them. But let me ask you, have you ever been to a church with a hat on and felt like some other eyes looking at you like, what is your deal, dude? You take your hat off. Um, whenever we sing the national anthem, what do we do? Take our hats off if we have a hat on. And that's because traditionally in our culture, it was, it was a term of respect to take your hat off when you're around an authority figure or when you're showing honor or deference to somebody. I think that tradition is changing as evidence here. And again, I don't want to make you feel bad if you're wearing a hat. Like, I, that's personally not an issue for me, but I do recognize that our culture still values that. That's a tradition. What about other churches? For some churches, you, I mean, take a look around here. We dress pretty casually. We're South Orange County. What do you expect? But other churches, if you walked in there like this, they'd be looking at you like, dude, you don't understand who God is, do you? There are churches that wear suits and ties and long flowing dresses that go down to the ankles. <laughs> and, big, and there are some churches that the ladies wear big hats, like big hats. <laughs> and that's their tradition. That's considered respectful and thoughtful and right and good. But here's the thing. When we, and that's okay, by the way. Those are okay. Those are fine expressions of the cultural traditions. But here's the thing, guys. When we start looking at those people and saying, those guys are so stuck up, right? And what's with this lady in her big hat? What's her deal? (laughs) Or or, or if they look at us and say, man, those people don't understand who God is. If they really understood who God is, they would wear suits and ties and dresses. The key here is never to elevate a tradition to the level of a law. Never to put a tradition on the same status as the word of God. Otherwise, we're guilty of doing the very same things that the Pharisees did, of allowing a man-made tradition to be binding where God's word has left us free. I mean, there's a lot of it. I mean, we, we, could, we could talk about other traditions. Throwing rice at a married couple. Why got to be rice? What if I want to throw a Chipotle burrito? <laughs> I mean, it's got rice in the burrito. <laughs> I didn't do that, but I might. I mean, now we do sparklers and we do other things. We did, uh, for one wedding, we did like smoke bombs or whatever. That was hard. I was choking. <laughs> I think I got lung cancer from that one. Where's Diego? <laughs> Traditions are fine and they're great, but we can't allow them to become on the same level as the word of God. Lastly, here's another one. Creating loopholes in God's word in order to circumvent it. Uh, circumvent, to go around, to undermine, to undercut. We used that one yesterday. Uh, to, to skip, to distort. Uh, we're using God's word against God's word. We're using God against God. Have you ever heard the, the, the term or the question, um, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? You ever heard that question? How would you answer that question? 
Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Let me offer you a question. Can God's left arm defeat God's right arm? Your answer would be like, well, Pastor Rod, that's nonsensical. And I would say, you're absolutely right. That's why that question makes no sense. And that's what happens when you're trying to create loopholes in God's word where you're pitting God's word against God's word. It's kind of what the, what the, what the Pharisees do here. But here's what that might look like. Uh, I think the heart of that question is kind of baked into the question of, well, Pastor Rod, how far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend before it's sinful? And I would say that's the wrong question. Because you're trying to pit yourself against God by saying, what actually is the line? He didn't give me a line, but I don't necessarily want to, uh, I don't want to cross that, but where is it? So I make sure that I don't do that. Or how about this? God's word says that when we give, we should be generous. We should be joyful in our giving. And so you might say to yourself, well, I'm not going to give because I'm not feeling particularly generous or joyful today. And I would say that's, that's a wrong application of the word of God. You're pitting God's word against itself when it's not meant to do that. In that case, our response then should be that we don't circumvent God's word. In fact, that's what the Jews were doing at this point in time. They were using something called Corbin. Not this Corbin. They were using a different kind of Corbin. <laughs> he's not dead. He's, he's, just, he's round. What's up, Corbin? So the problem is that we can override God's word with God's word, and that's what they were doing with the, the term Corbin. Essentially, it was like this. I can say right now, 2019, uh, Compass, I will to you all $30 of my savings. When I die, you can have all of it. But the problem, <laughs> but the problem, Compass 2020, but the problem was that when my parents said, hey, hey, son, you know, we're kind of hard up right now. We'd love to have you. Could you buy us dinner? You get, get us some groceries? And I say, sorry, mom and dad, I've, I've willed my, my life savings to Compass 2020. I wish I could help you, but I cannot. And in fact, it was the religious leaders who said, no, not only, not only have you dedicated your, your money to the word of God, or not the word of God, the, the, the temple, you can't even help them. So even if I wanted to, I could say, well, the church says I can't give you my money. And of course, Jesus looks at that and says, what is your problem? Now, that's what's going on here. That's what legalism looks like. Putting your tradition or man-made tradition above and beyond God's clear teaching. As I already mentioned before, guys, legalism is a lot like weeds, and it's in all of us. We have to be quick and careful to pull the weeds from our hearts. Otherwise, they have a tendency to grow and overrun uh, the yard of our hearts, so to speak. You've got to make sure you can't look at legalism and say, those Jews, those people, those bad people, it's us. We have a tendency to do this. We love to be transactional with God. We like contracts, but God doesn't work by contracts. He works by covenants, which are much more broad and all-encompassing. What do we do with that then? How do we respond to this? What you're about to read in the next few verses is how Jesus responds to their legalistic tendencies. And what he says will burn your eyebrows off. Are you ready? Jesus is about to lay down some heat. Here it goes. You, this, is, this is a scathing rebuke. Jesus d- does not, I mean, he gets pretty serious with some people. But in this text, like Jesus is laying down fire. And I'm not even going to let us off the hook of this. I'm going to make us face this as if he were talking to us at least a little bit. You ready? Okay. Prepare to get your heart hurt. He says to them, well, Pharisees asked the question. He says, why do your disciples not walk? And here we go again. According to the tradition of the elders, key words of the, of the day. But they eat with defiled hands. Again, not hygiene. This is custom. This is ritual. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That was painful. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are all show. You guys are fakers. You're hypocrites. You give lip service to the word of God, but your heart is nowhere near me. You pretend. You make great shows. You have the long gown, and you have the prayer tassels, and you have the religious garb, and you say the right things, and you make a long show of your prayers, and you say, oh, the Lord bless you, and you put your hands in the air perhaps when they worship. You do all of these things, but it's all vanity because what I really want is what you won't give me, and that's your heart. Woo! Jesus is breathing fire here. This is probably one of the most painful and scathing rebukes by Jesus about man-made religion because man-made religion is only skin deep. It's only lip service. But God's people have had to deal with this for a long time now. And what I want you to see from this is that it's not enough to simply say the right things about God. It's not even enough really to go through the right motions for God. What God demands of us is far greater So let's talk about it this way. As we go through point number two, we need to refuse to only go through the motions. Refuse to only go through the motions. To just pretend that you're doing the right thing. This is going to be a painful one, but let's do this quickly and make sure that we're on the same page with this. One of the things that I have longed for and I look forward to someday, maybe in the new heavens and the new earth, I want a particular car. When I was younger, I actually wanted a Toyota Corolla. That was my dream car. I know... Dare to dream, Pastor Rod, I know. (laughs) Now, my dream car is a little nicer. Not a lot nicer, a little nicer. I want a Tesla. I want a Tesla. Let me tell you why. There's several features about it that I like. Now, you you can use your phone to bring your car to you. So, like, when I'm done with the sermon, I just call it and it comes through the door and comes right here and drive on out. That's a new feature. But one of the features that I really like is that it has autopilot. I could be on the freeway driving to a wedding or driving someplace far away. I sit down and I can read. I can make a phone call. I can make myself a sandwich, I guess. There's a lot of things I can do. But one of the things I'm most looking forward to doing is actually what this guy is doing on the freeway right now. (laughs) He's taking a nap. There's a lot of videos out there of people taking a nap on the freeway in their Teslas. Someday maybe you'll see me on that video. People taking a nap on the freeway. While autopilot is a wonderful feature for our driving, autopilot is a terrible feature for our walk with God. Autopilot is amazing in the right places, but when it comes to our relationship with God, that is the worst possible way to have a walk with God. Autopilot, unthinking, unfeeling, minimal, uh, minimal effort needed to simply go through the motions. That's what he's talking about here. You honor me with your lips. You say the right things. You're, you're, you're just kind of saying things that are natural. It's the Christian cliche, the trite phraseology. You're doing that, but your heart's not with me. And guys, let's just be honest for a second, but we can all do this. We all know what this feels like. So when, we, when he's talking to a those guys and a them, let's not look over there and say those people and give the L-shaped amen of like, yeah, those guys, let's go here. Us, our hearts can often do this. We look just like this guy to God sometimes. Is cruising, going through the motions. Well, let me give you three areas where this is particularly painful. Let's get the obvious one out there. We can go through the motions in our devotions. I am a hip hop artist, Yes. Thank you for asking. Going through the motions in our devotions. For instance, here's the man-made rule. At Compass, we said, you know what, we want us as a church to go through a particular plan of the Bible. We call it DBR. You read through the Old Testament and the New Testament all the way in one year. 
And so the pastors have said, hey, we want our entire church to do this with us. We think this is a good thing. This is safe for you. This is a godly thing to do, a godly aspiration. Now, there's no Bible verse we can point to that says you must do DBR plan. I think you can point to a lot of verses that say you have to go through the Word of God constantly. But it's just for the sake of our example here. Say, there's no verse that says you have to do DBR. Okay? That's the man-made rule. Do DBR. And so maybe you as a student say, okay, well, Pastor Rod's telling me to do this. Pastor Mike's telling me to do this. And so you go through the Bible app. You're checking the box. Check, check, check. I'm reading it. I'm understanding it, I guess. Let me just check the box and get on with this. You read it, but you don't care. Or you read it, but you don't even know what you read. You ever have that issue where you're reading and next thing you know you're done? You're like, I don't even know what I... I guess I'm done. I read it. I know I looked at the words, but I don't really understand what I read. You read it and move on with your day. It's really as ordinary as brushing your teeth. Do you remember brushing your teeth this morning? Maybe some of you, but probably not. Like, it's kind of habitual. Hopefully, it's habitual at this point for you. Um, But it's as ordinary as as brushing your teeth. That's the man-made approach. But how does God want you to approach his word? Think about that for a second. How does God want you to approach his word? Let me give you a couple verses. Meditate on it day and night. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Honey was the sweetest thing available to them. What's the sweetest thing you have available to you right now? I thought of the Oreo cheesecake, okay? Your word is sweeter to me than an Oreo cheesecake. It's so delicious to my soul. I mean, that's the kind of response. Really, when it comes to our devotions, what God does not want you to do is read your Bible. God does not want you to read your Bible. You're waiting for the punchline, aren't you? He wants you to love his word. He wants you to love his word. And that, of course, means that I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to pray to have the right heart in my response to it. God doesn't want you to read. He doesn't want you to go through the motions of simply uh, creating more knowledge in your head and not having a real response to it. So when it comes to going through the motions, this is one of the easiest areas where it's most obvious. You're going through the motions. You're not enjoying the motions. You don't enjoy God's word. But God's word says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, not, you know, meagerly, not, uh, you know, smallly. Yes, I'm making up words. Not smallly. The word, uh, the word of God should be something that we enjoy and love and cherish. How about this one? Your worship. Man-made rules. Man-made tradition says when the worship is happening, when Ian's up here, you should stand up. You should be, you should be respectful. You should maybe even sing the words. Maybe if you can clap a little bit, that would be nice. But what does God want you to do with worship? Does he want you to sing songs? You know, it's kind of a trick question at this point. God wants you to bless the Lord. God wants you to love singing to him. God wants you to have a response to him in worship that is a real expression of your gratitude toward him. Now, Pastor Rod, I don't feel like it. I get this. Let me just say, I get this. That's why before I came to church today, I got me one of the biggest coffees I could possibly get. I had a bad night of sleep. But I went and said, I'm gonna get a coffee so that when I come to church, I'm ready. I want to be able to engage. I want to be able to sing. I want to be able to know what I'm talking about. I want to be able to interact with the sermon in my head and my heart so that when my worship to God is coming before him, I am fully there. Singing to God. God wants us to be all in, guys. He doesn't want our fakery. He doesn't want our going through the motions. And just like you wouldn't want that from, for, for you, right? You want your parents just going through the motions with you? What do you want, Cameron? 
Okay, go ahead. Go get food. You again, huh? Okay. I guess I have to feed you. I guess I have to shelter you. I guess I have to clothe you. Like, who, who wants a friend like that? Who wants a friend who just goes through the minimum effective dose of relationship just to pretend to be your friend or at least give you a, the bare minimum of what you need? And that's often how we treat God. And that's where Jesus gives this scathing, fiery rebuke to them. You hypocrites. You worship me. You honor me with your lips. But your heart is far from me. And we can even take it a step further. You honor me with your motions. You open up your Bible and you maybe recite it and maybe you're memorizing it. But your heart, the thing that God most wants from you is far. And I'm not just talking about emotions, you understand. The heart is more than just the seatbed of our emotional response. The heart is the seatbed of our entire lives. He's saying, I want all of you to be in this. I want your mind. I want your soul. I want your heart. I want your emotions. I want everything. Your devotions, your worship. Sometimes, really quick here, really quick. When you're sitting down to listen to a sermon, what does it look like then if you're truly engaging in listening for God's voice in this? Here's what I tell you. I'll be really brief on this because I don't think we've talked about how to listen to a sermon. But when I'm preaching, what I fully 100,000% expect of you is that you are Acts 17 in this bad boy all the way through. Is what Pastor Rod is saying biblical? If it's not, Chuck it. But if it is, then I do dare say it's binding in that. If it's biblical application, you should be able to say, okay, I have my marching orders. This is what God wants me to do. But again, if what I'm saying is not biblical, you should be listening closely enough to be able to discern, oh, I wonder if there's, uh, does that make sense? Is, is that what God's word does teach? And if so, I should do that. If not, then I don't want to do this. We want to be good Bereans examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Which means, of course, you're listening intently, taking notes, asking questions, even as you listen. That's what active listening is all about. Your devotions, your worship, and how about this? Let's just do this one really quick. Small groups. You show up to small groups, tolerate the discussion, you engage if you have to, if you don't like the conversation, you secretly judge the people that, while, they're, while they're talking. You may not like the questions that are asked. You may think that there's another small group that's better, and you leave when your sentence is up. That's kind of the man-made tradition. You have to go there, be there, because maybe mom and dad are making you. But the, the heartfelt response to this, here's how God wants you to think about small groups. He doesn't want you to go to small groups. If small groups is what you think of as the only means of fellowship that you engage in. In fact, God's word says to exhort one another. How often? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. Small groups is one facet, one area, one small piece of the, the, of the fellowship pie. Your, your, your job when you engage in small groups is not how much can I get out of this? How much can my leader entertain me? How much can I get people to talk about me and take interest in me? Is how much can I serve others? How can I be a good exhortation and a good blessing to the people in my group? How do I love them the way Christ has loved me? Those are the kind of things that we should be asking. That's, that's heartfelt devotion. And that's what it means to not just go through the motions. Now, let me just be the first one to tell you, this is almost impossible. Almost. But it is possible for those who, A, God bless you, love God, and B, have been filled with his spirit, which are those, those are the same people. If you're filled with the spirit of God, God has deposited within you the ability to do this. But, but let's just all take, take a second to admit we're all phonies and hypocrites here. 
When it comes down to it, none of us has obeyed the word of God perfectly, which is why, and this is what I love about God's word, he gives grace. God provides grace. When we fail and we mess up, God says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll give you the energy. I'll give you the forgiveness and the freedom that you need to pursue me the way you're supposed to. When you look at these things and you say, yeah, Pastor, I'm, I'm a faker. I'm not doing it the way I'm supposed to. Congratulations, you're at a place where you're now able to understand God's grace and respond to it. Because when you understand it right, then you see, okay, I'm not doing what I need to do. God, help me. I'm, I'm weak. I don't understand this the way I should. But please, by your grace, let me do this the way I'm supposed to. And then you start praying before you go through your devotions. You start praying before you get to church. You start praying before you go to small groups. You start begging God, help me. I can't do this. And let me tell you, that's exactly where God wants you. Because the moment you think you can do it yourself is the moment you are in serious danger because you can't do it yourself. No one is enough for these things. Which really comes to a head here. I've been talking about God's word and tradition this whole time, but let's really crystallize what we mean by that. It's not just about lip service. It's not just about going through the motions, but what are we talking about when we talk about tradition? Here's what Jesus says. We talked about this a moment ago. You leave the commandment of God and hold to, there it is again, the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way. You're so clever rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. I want you to notice something here. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. He's essentially making the point here. Jesus is saying, this is how serious this commandment is. You dishonor your father and mother, you're liable to die. I'm glad to be under the New Testament. Let me just say that. I don't want to die. I could have died a long time ago if this was it. He's quoting Moses. Verse 11. But, it, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the, look at this, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Jesus is saying, this is not just an isolated incident. This is the way that you always act. But I want you to notice the comparison here. He says in verse 10, that this is what Moses said. And yet in verse 13, he says, this is what the word of God says. He's equating the words of Moses with word of God, which ought to tell you something that the Bible is more than just man's opinion. This is about God expressing himself through the pen of people like Moses. God is responsible for this. But he's saying, when you make the comparison, you have to understand what God's word is versus what the tradition is. So point number three, let's do it like this. Let's discern between doctrine and tradition. And we're going to do this pretty rapid fire. We've been talking about this this whole sermon, but let's crystallize what we're really meaning here. Doctrine and tradition. Scripture, God's late, uh, God's clear, expressed teaching versus that which we've designed ourselves. A man-made tradition, which again, as I said, it's not necessarily bad to have traditions. In fact, I would say one of the traditions that is, I think, changing is the way that human beings interact with one another. Anyone who's over the age of 18 in this room would probably look at something like this and say, yeah, that's people hanging out and talking and having a good time. That's how they're supposed to interact. In fact, if you notice, a lot of girls, they're really, really uncomfortably close and really touchy. The kind of touching and uncomfortable closeness that guys would never do. In fact, the guys across them are looking confused, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you are way too close. Get your hand off her hand. That's weird. But that's the way that human beings interact, particularly adults, the older generation. But often what I find, and you guys may not agree to this, last night, Saturday crowd pushed back and said, no, that's not true. I think it is. Let me just throw it out at you and you can accept it or reject it. This is not the Bible. This is Pastor Rod's observation. I think this is changing because what I often see are things like this. 
See, interactions that are taking place where the, there's a mediator between you guys, not a good one, not Jesus, it's the phone. Um, and again, I, I'm, not throwing, I'm not throwing shade here. I'm just making, making reference that this is kind of how things te- seem to be progressing. And as people get younger and younger holding a phone and a tablet or device, it seems like this is kind of where our society is headed. Some people don't like that, and I understand that. But here's the thing. Traditionally, you should look the other person in the eye. You should stand at attention. If your phone goes off, you shouldn't pick it up and, and look at it and do something while you're talking to the person. It's, having, it's happened recently. It's talking to somebody and having this really like deep conversation, eye to eye, face to face, and their phone lit up and they're like, oh, I, I think they were mid-sentence too. Okay. I, I just smiled because I knew the sermon was coming. This is the thing. <laughs> That's the thing, that our, our conversations are changing because traditionally we think it should be this and this and no phones in between, but things are changing. And maybe your kids, when you guys have kids, after we do TN Matchmaker, maybe your kids are going to start using devices exclusively and face-to-face is foreign and we never do that anymore. That would be a sad day for me. I would cry. But tradition, they change. They modify. And I guess really that's the point. When we look at the difference between these two, tradition, uh, when it comes down to it, is morally neutral. It doesn't have a a moral quality to it, usually. However, when it comes down to doctrine, that is binding. Talk about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the love of God, the doctrine of humanity. What we're doing is synthesizing God's word and saying, this is what the Bible teaches about A, B, C, and D. By and large, that is a morally binding equation. It's something that's true and right and doesn't change. Traditions are man-made, as we already talked about this. You know, throwing rice at the couple, uh, bringing fruitcake on, uh, on Christmas, which no one likes. We still do that, though. Uh, having turkey on Thanksgiving. Why not something else? Why not a cat? There's a million things that we could do and maybe perhaps should do, but we don't. Traditions are man-made. Doctrine is grounded in Scripture. So this is not something man conjures up. This is the way God interacts with us. This is the way that God has intended for us to understand Him and understand the world around us. That's what doctrine encompasses. Traditions tend to change over time. As I already pointed out, we, we currently, uh, we're starting to talk more and more with our heads down and looking at our devices rather than having a face-to-face conversation. Again, not making a comment about that. I'm just recognizing that's kind of where we're going. Traditions tend to change over time, and that's okay. That's okay. It might be that in, in the next 50 years, we wear shorts and flip-flops at church. And, well, we, some of us do, actually. And that's fine. I'm, I'm not throwing stuff out there. But we should examine traditions. Let me just say that. We should examine traditions to see if they make sense according to the Word of God. You never should confuse them, though. Doctrines don't change. Um, doctrines do, however, go through a process of refinement. In fact, throughout church history, uh, doctrines like uh, who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is have gone through a series of progressive clarity. It's not that they're changing more than they're being refined or trying to understand what the whole Word of God teaches about a certain subject like the Holy Spirit. And thus we say, okay, now we fully understand the Holy Spirit is not just God's power, but rather it is a third person of the Trinity. He is, in fact, God himself, God the Holy Spirit. So doctrines don't change, but they do, they have been refined. Traditions, they can be helpful, fun, entertaining. There's something that we can look at and say, oh, that's really cool that we do that. Now, I tend to like that compass doesn't make me wear a suit. In fact, I'm a very casual guy. I'd wear jeans and a t-shirt every day of my life if I could, but sometimes I feel like I should wear a collar, part of my calling. Um, But anyway, they can be fun, helpful, entertaining even. But when it comes to doctrine, uh, it doesn't care what you think or feel. Uh, Doctrine is doctrine. It's God's word. It doesn't change. It doesn't uh, mutate. But here's a beautiful thing about doctrine, God's word. It's written in such a way that, as I mentioned before, it doesn't have explicit teaching about Chance the Rapper. It doesn't have explicit teaching about skinny jeans. It does have a lot of different principles that we look at and say, how does this best fit and apply to our culture today? 
Tradition versus doctrine. A lot of differences there. Now, let me ask you a question. We haven't said this, and I kind of alluded to it this whole time. How do you distinguish between tradition and doctrine? If I were to throw you into a different planet with a different church and had different approaches to how they do the service and the Word of God and all that, how would you be able to tell if something was biblical? You'd have to know the Word of God, right? Young person, this is, this is really a side point, but it's a big point. We, we preach the Word of God here all the time. And I feel like for, for, for you guys who have been around for a long time, for you it might be kind of ordinary and passe at this point. You have to know the Word of God. Some of you guys are going to be leaving the college in just a couple years, maybe even this year. You're going to be separated from Compass. You're going to be doing your own thing. You're going to be challenged because you take for granted a lot of things that we teach. But you have to understand that there's a lot of hard work that goes into understanding God's Word and applying it to your lives. Now is the time to practice this. You should not be allowing yourself the... the, the the excuse of like, well, I'm young, the Bible's hard. In fact, the Bible's hard is, is true. And we all agree to that. The Bible's hard. But that's why we are so blessed to have a wealth of resources, not only in our bookstore, but through things like our study Bibles and our phones and our apps and a million other resources that we can be thoroughly blessed by. When it comes to tradition versus doctrine, God has given us a lot of freedom in how we apply doctrine to our lives. Traditions are great. They're helpful. They're fun. They can be. But when it comes down to it, guys, we have to understand that no matter what our traditions are, we can never let those trump the God-given truths that he's given us. We have to let God be God, to know his word, follow it. We have to be Bible students, be careful not to let any of our traditions surpass or trump the priority of knowing God's word and following it. So we dismiss today. I, I really wish we did have time to discuss this in small groups, in it, but we're not going to do that. Because as you remember, we have TNU this coming Wednesday. But I would love for you, if at some point today or maybe during the week when you meet up with your leader or your friends, I would love for you to discuss this and see if you can identify any other traditions that I did not mention. Because we have a lot of them. Things that are not specifically grounded in Scripture as do this, do that, but just kind of ways that we interact with one another. Things that we've developed over time that... They're just kind of a part of our church life. We don't notice them because they're all around us. But if you think about it for a little bit, you'll, I'm sure you'll find them. So pastoral uh, encouragement from this is, we'd love for you to discuss this even though there's no small groups. Let's pray.